Tonight, we're going to talk about acting right, and uh, I don't know why I'm teaching on it. It's kind of like sending um, Paul to the uh, <laughs> to the uh, uh, Gentiles. That's the word. <laughs> I am not a polished preacher, but I do love Jesus, and um, and He speaks to me. Um, why do you guys think that God hates sin? Do, does he does he seem like some kind of intergalactic rule keeper who <laughs> who just gets really angry when we disobey him? Uh, is is it for the sake of the rules that he hates sin? I mean, what what's why does he hate sin so much? Yes, Sasha, because it hurts us. You know, uh, there's this there's this guy named Lucifer, and um, and he's really quite opposite of this guy named Jesus. And Lucifer, I, I was uh, <laughs> I was looking through Philippians two today, where there's this awesome discourse about Jesus and how um, he, although being in the very nature of God, he was God. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking on the very form of a servant. And the Lord said, hey, insert, insert Satan's name in there and reverse everything. And I, I did it, and it was kind of fun, so check this out. Satan, not having the nature of God, considered equality with God something to be grasped. And he made himself everything, taking on the very nature of a slave master. And uh, because of that, he was kicked out of heaven. He wanted the image of God. He wanted uh, praises to be ascribed to him, to, for all of creation to sing his praises. And, uh, and so he, he obviously couldn't, couldn't stay in paradise with that kind of mentality. Um, and, and the Lord banished him to, to earth. And there came this day um, where, you know... Satan heard the most terrifying words he had ever heard in his life. And it's when God said this, Let us make man in our image. And then, all of a sudden, God forms these what appear to be weak creatures out of dust and places his nature, his image on them. The very thing that Lucifer wanted. Can you imagine him being a little bit jealous of us now? His main plot is to get us to take on his image instead of the Lord's. This is why God hates sin, because when we sin, it's not the sin itself, it's the effects of the sin. I wrote this down because I felt like I said it pretty, pretty well. Um, the enemy's end goal is not to get us to sin, but it's to get us to take on his image through the effects of sin. See, what comes after sin is worse. I don't know if I'm the only one in here who's ever sinned, but um, after I sin, often, sometimes, what, what comes over me is this uh, uh, religious striving. And I think these thoughts, they, they kind of sound like this. Okay, I screwed up big, so what I'm going to have to do is, 
you know, act right for at least two weeks before I'll be an empowered Christian again. And I step into the enemy's nature of shame, of trying to earn something that is a gift. See, the enemy has us crippled when he convinces us that we have to earn something that's already been given to us. So righteousness. Righteousness is an inward reality that works itself out into holy living. And there's this thing called imputed righteousness. That's kind of a big word. It just means that Jesus put his righteousness on us. He transferred it to us. There are all these incredible verses. I want to read one of them. This is 1 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 5.17, Paul describes this thing called a gift of righteousness. So, um, it it goes along with this term called justification. And justification is uh, what happens when faith enters our heart and we trust Jesus to give us a new life. It's this moment, and it's beautiful. It's this moment where it's an instantaneous legal act of God in which he thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us and declares us to be righteous in his sight. There's a, in the U.S. court system, there's this cool um, law that when you're, when you're acquitted of a crime, you can never be tried for that crime again. It's the same thing with the Lord. Okay, justification is, it's a, it's a legal term. It means that you've been acquitted. Anybody in here believe that Jesus is the Son of God and He died for your sins and He's going to give you a new life and take you into eternity forever with you? That means that you have been acquitted. Never to be tried again. It's a once and for all act. Isn't that, doesn't that feel good? That mercy is insane. How can he be that merciful? It's so nice. Mm. Do you know the first time where uh, righteousness is referenced in Scripture? Vince can't say it. (laughs) Anybody want to venture a guess? Yes. Nice has to do with the father of our faith. You know, righteousness is a pretty big deal to God. But for some reason, he decided to wait 15 chapters and 6 verses to mention it. It says, Abram, Abram, this is before he gets his name changed, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Did you know that The moment you believe is when he accredits righteousness to you. We're not made righteous by what we do. We're made righteous by what we believe. 
The end. Have a great night. No. Wait a minute, Jeremy. I've read in 1 John 3, 7, don't let anyone lead you astray. Yeah. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. So there has to be some kind of disconnect here because we've been imputed righteous, but righteousness. We are now the righteousness of God, but we still want to look at porn. Uh-oh. <laughs> See, I'm a, I'm a young man and a, a, a pastor at that, so I hear a lot of these, these kinds of struggles. So it, it has to mean that righteousness has to be worked out. That righteousness is actually a contagious identity that works its way through all of our existence. Does anybody know what that process is called? You guys are good. Did you grow up in the church? <laughs> Sanctification? What in the world is that? Okay, we got justification. And then we have sanctification. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a chart. I don't know if it's going to help anyone in here or not, but it helped me. Okay, justification is a legal standing. Sanctification is an internal process. So this is the thing that is once for, for all time. My handwriting is so awesome. Uh, sanctification is continuous. throughout this life. <laughs> this is just beautiful. Thank you, public school. Um, <laughs> if I grew up in the age where they like smack your hand for bad penmanship, my knuckles wouldn't work. I would not be able to play guitar. Justification. You know, I think we understand this one. I'm going to make some more room. Justification is entirely God's work. Anybody know a verse for that? By grace, you've been saved. Faith. This is not of yourself. It's a work of God. It's a gift of God so that no man can boast. It's entirely God's work. Pretty cool. Sanctification, what do you think? Is it entirely God's work? No. Co-labor. Co -labor. That's great. Co-labor or we cooperate. Justification is perfect <laughs> in this life. Sanctification, we don't have any examples of anyone who's ever been made perfect in this life, do we? Well, yes, Jesus. But we don't have any examples. <laughs> we don't have any examples of um, 
people being made perfect in this life. That's a whole other teaching we're not going to jump into tonight. Justification, it's the same for all Christians. Sanctification, same for all Christians. Justification, there are different levels that people attain. Man, that's great. <laughs> it's hard to be left-handed <laughs> on a whiteboard. You know what happens when you're left-handed? This happens. <laughs> Anybody else in here know those woes of being a lefty? Man, I went home from school all through elementary school, and my, my, my hand was just gray with pencil lead. Yeah, you write with a Captain Hook claw. <laughs> My goodness. <clears throat> okay. So sanctification, there's a cooperation on our part. What does that look like? Let me say this first of all. Sanctification is primarily a work of God. Primarily. It says, Jesus says this in John 17, 19. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they too may be sanctified. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 30, that Jesus is our sanctification. 1 Th Thessalonians. <laughs> may the God of peace himself sanctify you. May the God of peace himself sanctify you wholly. Philippians 1.6, this is one of my favorite verses. Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work and you will be faithful to carry it to completion until the day of Christ. So who began the work? Holy Spirit, Jesus, whatever, you know, the, the God. God began the work. The Holy Spirit began this work in you. And he's going to carry it to completion. But... We do cooperate somehow. I'm going to get there. Um, let me say this, though. We can very quickly join the accuser in cutting ourselves down if we start searching for the things that are wrong with us. It'll have an appearance of wisdom, but really what you're doing is crippling yourself. When you're just, just digging in there, like, what about that God? And, oh, I thought I was more holy than that. Look at that nastiness in my heart. Anybody ever been there? Anybody ever gone into a deep, like a season of deep introspection and come out encouraged at what you found? <laughs> <laughs> Philippians 2.13 says, God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Well, Jeremy, all you just did is give me all the ways that God does it without us like getting in there. Well, we do have a role in this. There's a passive and an active role. The passive side of us cooperating with sanctification is that we're kind of like that lump of clay to the potter. Right? He's the potter. We're the lump of clay. Don't jump off the spinning wheel. <laughs> you yield. There's this verse in Romans 6.13 says, We yield ourselves to God as men brought from death to life. 
Romans 12.1 says, we present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And so it's this passiveness where we are letting him do his thing. His favorite kind of stuff is transforming us into the image of Christ. We say, Lord, come and do your favorite thing in my heart. And if I don't even understand what you're doing, all the better. If I wake up tomorrow and a lot of those issues that I I was dealing with are gone, I don't know how it happened. I don't care. I'm just glad they're gone. Right? That's most of the time how he delivers us. Anyone ever gotten delivered in a dream before? I woke up and I was like, whoa. I know Kung Fu. (laughs) (laughs) I know, man. It's a passive, this is the passive side of us cooperating in our sanctification. Have you ever seen a, a child getting their haircut for the first time at a, like one of those child barber places? I've got three kids under three. Let me tell you. The, the first time we went to get Judah his haircut, he thought that woman was going to kill him. Like those scissors were the end of his life. So he is screaming and fighting and smacking. He would have bit her if she didn't move quickly. (laughs) Judah can't cut his hair, right? He's a kid. I mean, he could, but it would end up bad. Like, Judah can't give himself a haircut. But what he learned to do through discipline is to sit still while the master was at work. I thought it was good too. Thank you. <laughs> um, so we do have uh, we do have these things where we can participate in our own cleansing. Romans eight thirteen says, "If by the Spirit, so it says, if by the Spirit you put the, to death the deeds of the body, you will live, or the deeds of the flesh, you will live." And but it starts that sentence off with, "If by the Spirit." So we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh. There's another verse where it says we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. I read this uh, uh, theologian, because I'm so wise. Um, I'm just kidding. Uh, I read this theologian, and he said that, that verse, the way he describes it is, we work out the further realization of the benefits of salvation. We become more and more aware of how great it is to be in the family of God. Another thing we can do to speed up our cleansing, or to assist in our cleansing, if you will. Um, <laughs> we confess our sins to God and to, one, to each other. He's passed on the, the ministry of reconciliation to us. And so I actually need people in my life that I can go to and say, I screwed up big time. And they're like, you're forgiven, bro. And they pray for me. And it says in uh, 1 John that the Lord is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and my favorite part, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I know that the Lord is merciful. He's a forgiving Father. He's relentless in that forgiveness. But my favorite part of that verse is that He will cleanse me from all unrighteousness. 
Did you know that there is more power released in one moment of humble transparency when you confess your sin to a brother? When you despise the shame and just get it out in the open, there's more power in that than in a decade of resisting and hiding in your own. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. These rules indeed have an appearance of wisdom, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. It has an appearance of wisdom to set up all these rules to try to work out your own righteousness. But the Lord is saying, you need a family. You can't do this on your own. Not even Jesus could carry his own cross. Right? He needed someone to carry that for him. Woo! I just ruffled my own feathers with that one. (laughs) So confession. Isn't that cool? You're like, well, yeah, I just love telling people how screwed up I am. (laughs) Can't wait. Guys. Get free. Tell people. And I went through uh, a week of deliverance with my wife. It was called RTF. And it was wonderful. After that, I felt this new freedom to tell people how screwed up I was. (laughs) Anywhere I went, I was like, yeah, I lost it after that. Yeah. It's like I became an open book. It's very freeing. I had a, a young man confess to me this week uh, some struggles with pornography. And man, he just looked like a sad puppy dog. Just so heavy. And like before he could say another thing, I just said to him, I've looked at a lot of porn in my life. You know what that did? It shifted the whole, minute, the whole moment and destroyed shame in his heart. And I said, that is not where we want to live. It is not where any man of God desires to be stuck. It is not an addiction that any of us are fond of. But hiding will make you stuck in there a whole lot longer. Shabba-dabba. <laughs> Zip-boing. That's a real prayer language from a friend of mine. <laughs> that's, a, that's another night, another teaching. Okay. First um, John 2, 6. He who says he abides in him ought to walk the same way he walked. Come on. See, Jesus did not give us freedom to sin. Jesus gave us freedom from sin. He is our prototype. He is the firstborn among many brethren. We are being continually changed into his likeness, 2 Corinthians 3.18. We are conformed to the image of his son, Romans 8.29. Leaving you an example, that's Jesus, follow in his footsteps, that's 1 Peter 2.21. Paul's goal was actually to be conformed to Jesus even in his death. But Jeremy, we still sin. I still have this thing. I can't get out. I'm trying so hard. Romans 6, 12 through 13. Well, first of all, Romans 8. Love that chapter. 
That was my mantra for like my whole teenage life. There is no, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Every day, <laughs> every day I was quoting that verse over myself. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 6.12 says, Don't let sin reign in your body, nor yield your members to sin. He doesn't say that we won't sin. He says, don't let sin dominate you. There's this, ver- there's this word that Paul uses a lot, and it's, called, it's the word practice. Anybody join a sports team and you, you practiced? You got a lot better as the year went by, and, unless you had no skill. But I'm just like, you, you practice because you want to get better, okay? Paul is saying, don't practice unrighteousness. Don't get better at sinning, okay? Doesn't that feel good? He's not saying... Okay, if you are trying to not sin, you're already on the right path. He's saying don't practice. If you are continually getting better at sinning, then you really need to start confessing something, get some deliverance going on. Does that make sense? (laughs) Paul references practicing unrighteous, unrighteousness several times. So there is a difference between sinning and practicing sin. He also uses the same word when he says things like practice hospitality. You get to practice holy spiritual things and get better at them. Isn't that cool? You can practice your spiritual gifts. First John, anyone ever been confused by that book? This guy right here has. Yeah. Um, there's... A, there's 1 John 3.6, it says that no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. Oh, man, I'm going to hell. <laughs> no one who lives in him. Oh, man, I've got a long way to go. I'm not even in him. <laughs> right? That's a tough one. But then he says, if we sin, we have an advocate. Oh, okay. So what he's saying again is no one goes on who is living in him and gets better and better at sinning. It gets better and better at unrighteousness because he automatically gives us this verse that comforts us where he says, if we sin, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We would, Jesus wouldn't need to be a sympathetic high priest if the moment we got saved we didn't sin anymore. Why would he need to be sympathetic with our struggles? Right? He was tempted in every Every, every way, and yet was without sin. So he's able to help us when we're being tempted. But you know what? It is really fun to grow in righteousness, to have that righteousness that's inside of you start to take over areas of your life. It's, it's actually thrilling, and you start to glow even more. You start to glow like out in, in dark places because there's something so polar opposite about you than the general motif of the area you just walked into. It's thrilling to grow in active righteousness. Huge mistakes don't disqualify you. We talked about the first time righteousness was mentioned in Scripture. Abraham. Do you know what he did? He pimped out his wife. 
That is an appropriate use of that term. I'm serious. He sold his wife as a prostitute for financial gain. That's what he did. It's in scripture. It's the father of our faith. Hallelujah. (laughs) This is after he had powerful encounters with the living God. After he saw him. And then after that, okay, God obviously bailed him out because he can't let the father of the faith die. So he bailed him out. And, and for years, Abraham is walking with God. He gets his name changed and everything. He, he becomes his friend of God and has these amazing moments with the Lord. And you know what he does later on? He pimps out his wife again. He does the same bonehead thing that he did at the beginning of his walk. At that point, I'd be thinking, God, did you really mean to hook your wagon to that pony? (laughs) You You want him to carry the lineage of Christ? You want him to be the archetype of a a father sacrificing his son for the redemption of the land? Because that's what Abraham became. But Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness. And by the end of his life, Abraham was engaging in conversations with the living God. David... What about that guy? He wrote all of our psalms. I mean, we sang like derivatives of David's lines tonight. We've been singing David's psalms forever. Another type of of Jesus in in the Bible, a foreshadowing of Jesus, right? King David, what did he do? He plotted the murder of one of his friends to cover up the affair that he was having with that man's wife. That's a, that's a big mistake for a man that's encountered God. I don't think you're supposed to make those mistakes after you encounter God. Uh, Peter, this guy was given the keys of the kingdom by Jesus. Moments later... He manifests Satan in the room. You remember that story? Jesus is saying, I'm going to be betrayed in the hands of the Son, and I'm you know, going to be murdered. And, and Peter's like, may it never be. That's not going to happen. He literally, the guy that's been given the keys to the kingdom of heaven, <laughs> manifests Satan. Jesus even says, I recognize that Satan has just come in the room through you. <laughs> You're going to have to get behind me now. (laughs) This is the rock upon which the church will be built. That revelation that Peter had of that Jesus is the Savior of the world, the Son of God, the Father of the church. He denied Jesus. In front of people, maybe it was like he was afraid of losing his popularity or he he became ashamed all in one moment or afraid for his life, but he denied Jesus, deserted him at the cross. 
Jesus goes to him and restores him. And I think that that's exactly what the Lord is going to do with a lot of us tonight. We have something in our lives where uh, shame has grabbed a hold of us and we have hidden and deserted Jesus. And he wants to come and tell you, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. So how are we supposed to grow in active righteousness instead of just this inward reality? How do we get that inward reality to infect every aspect of our life? There's this thing called grace. My favorite verse on grace, well, one of them, is Titus 2.11. It says, For the grace of God has appeared that brings men to salvation, or offers salvation to all people. It teaches us, or it trains us, to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. It's grace that empowers us to say no to ungodliness. I've done a lot of time, spent a lot of time meditating on grace. And grace comes through mercy. Let me read this to you. I wrote it out earlier today when I was feeling the Holy Ghost. His unending mercy displayed by repetitious and unrelenting forgiveness and cleansing sparks in us a desire to please Him. We then make it our aim to please Him. That's 2 Corinthians 5.9. We transition from being motivated by a fear of punishment to a life of practicing righteousness motivated by love for the one that never gave up on us. He forgives us again and again and again and again and again and again and it is an unrelenting mercy until eventually there's a shift in that area in that area where our conscience has been seared or we have been stuck in an addiction there's this shift that happens where you realize he won't stop forgiving me. He won't stop forgiving me. And this shift looks like this. Instead of, oh, I'm just trying so hard not to sin because I know that he hates it and there's, you know, it's going to mess up my life. There's this shift that happens where like, I want to please this man that never gives up on me. you right now, Satan has a boast before the Lord, and it sounds something like this. You created man to be objects of your affection, to be your sons and daughters and your friends, and you placed him in paradise where it was so easy for them to choose you, but they chose me. And I'm telling you that a day is near, and it is coming when God is going to reverse that boast and a people are going to raise up and it's going to be in the face of the darkest time in all of history where there is compromise, there is sexual insanity, where there, it is so easy to choose the enemy and we're going to choose God. Yeah. And everything's going to be reversed. Yeah. Praise the Lord. 
Let's stand up and ask the Lord for this to become a reality in our lives. We don't need any music or anything. The Holy Spirit's in the in the room. He loves music, but he's already here. I had an experience with the Lord. If you guys want to close your eyes, I'm just going to tell you this experience that I had with Him, and I think that it's going to become a reality for all of us. Um, it was just a, a, in a, like a vision, you know, like one of those daydreams that was really, really powerful. But what what happened is I was um, seated in the. Um, the chair, you know, next to the judge in a, in a courtroom uh, where the defendant would, you know, would sit or whatever witnesses are brought up. What is the name of that chair? Anybody? The stand? The witness stand. Okay. <laughs> there I'm sitting, and um, and Jesus is standing in front of me, and he is my uh, he's my defender, and the accuser is in the room, and he's launching all of these accusations and the, the things that are coming out of his mouth are actually things that I had done and false mentalities that had uh, robbed my life and as he was launched the first one you know condemnation and fear filled my heart and when he launched it out of his mouth this first accusation from the accuser it actually had a visible substance a form to it and Jesus, being my defender, smacked it to the ground and said, not guilty. And the accuser threw out another accusation that actually had truth to it. And Jesus smacked it to the ground and said, not guilty. And another came and he smacked it to the ground and said, not guilty. Not guilty. Not guilty. Not guilty. And I just started crying on that, on that bench. Because he had acquitted me of all, of all charges. Lord, I ask that there would be a realization of our new purity, of our new acquittal, that we will never be tried for those crimes again. But God, there is a righteousness that cannot be robbed from us is inside of us and is continually working its way out. And God, I ask that you would continue to empower us in greater levels of grace that we would be able to say no to all ungodliness. God, I ask that you would free us from shame. God, that we would come out of our caves of hiding. And let us know the joys 
of realized purity in every area of our lives.